Hi, good morning, everyone. My name is Sawyer. You may recognize me by now. I recently completed the pastoral residency program here at Bayview Glen, and it's great to be back with you again. If you have your Bibles, would you open up to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18? Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the uh, whole Bible Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Open it up there. We're going to be there in about five minutes. We're starting here. We'll end up in John. Fun fact. Every year, the Oxford English Dictionary picks a word of the year that is emblematic of big moments or events that happened during that time. In 2016, the word of the year was post truth. Post truth, and it had a lot to do with the elections, I'm not getting into that, but post truth was just referring to the phenomenon, at least in Western culture, that in some subject areas, The truth of the matter, things like data or evidence or facts, they weren't the deciding point. They didn't hold as much value as people's opinions or beliefs or emotions. And I think this is interesting because it doesn't mean that our culture doesn't believe that truth exists anymore, but this term, the word of the year, it's just tracking the fact that truth in some subject areas has a depreciating market value. In our culture's marketplace of ideas. And I think there's some relevant similarities between however evidence is viewed in the political sphere with also how we view the nature of truth when it comes to religious or spiritual claims. And I think when we look in God's Word today, we're looking at Jesus and truth, there may be some friction between how God's Word presents it and maybe how our culture views these topics as well. So I thought that was worth bringing up at the outset in case you feel any、uh, mismatch between what we think now and what we see there. During the foundation series, we have been going through core tenets of the Christian faith and understanding the person of Jesus through the Old Testament. This week, and for the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at what the church has referred to as the divine offices of Jesus. And these just refer to the roles or the hats that Jesus wore. During his earthly ministry. And the three that the, the church as a whole is typically referred to them as is Jesus as prophet, Jesus as priest, and Jesus as king. This week we're looking at the first one Jesus as prophet. And even before we dive into that, I already feel a mismatch in my head between what I think of the term prophet and what the Bible actually says. When I think of prophet, I think of somebody who makes prophecies, someone who talks about the future. And within at least Mainstream media, film, and literature today, this is a very, very common trope that there's a prophecy of a chosen one who is to come, and they're going to come, they'll defeat the bad guys, and they'll make everything great. And you see this in a lot of prominent works. You see this in Star Wars, Lord of the Rings,、uh, The Terminator, The Matrix, Game of Thrones, and Kung Fu Panda 1, 2, and 3. Oh, I didn't see that coming. Today, we're looking at the greatest. Prophet and the greatest fulfillment of prophecy in the history of the world. By looking at Jesus as prophet, we will see how Jesus brings the truth, how Jesus is the truth, and how Jesus heals us with the truth. So, without further ado, let's begin. Jesus brings the truth. Now,、uh, compared to Kung Fu Panda, in the Bible, a prophet is a spokesperson for God, simply one who relates the message for God. The word prophet is two small, simple Greek words that are just stacked on top of each other. It's the word pro, which means to go before, and the word femi, 
I hope I'm saying that right, which means to be for speaking. It means to stand before, pro, and to speak. And this word uh, is what literally prophet comes from. You also see the word similarly, similarly used when God says to Moses, hey, you're going to speak for me. But then they also say to uh, Aaron, you are going to speak for Moses. This is the same word that they use. So this is the truth sayer for God. And the claims that they made, usually with prophets in the Bible, related to the present. It always wasn't just talking about the future. They would tell you how God said things actually were. What was the nature of being human? What was the nature of the world? And what was the nature of God himself? Now this runs contrary to some contemporary views of what it means to be human and who gets the say and what is the nature of divine truth. I'm gonna share two of these today, kind of polar opposites, but you see both of them present in different areas. The first is a quote from a very famous philosopher and mathematician and logician named Bertrand Russell. He got a Nobel Prize, I think he passed away in the 70s. This is the quote from him. Man is the product of accidental collocations of atoms. Collocations just means arrangement. Man is the product of accidental collocations of atoms. All the noonday brightness of human genius is destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation be safely built. It's quite perky. (laughs) Simply put, what Russell, Bertrand Russell is saying, is that humanity is a grand cosmic accident. There wasn't any design that brought us here. We're not anything particularly special. We're lucky to be here. And everything about human life, uh, achievement on this earth, architecture, music, food, fun, laughter, friendship, music, love, all of this is going to disappear when the universe collapses. And the key to this life is just learning to make peace with that. And that's how you get on with it. So that's Bertrand Russell. Contrast this with the very famous actress, Shirley MacLaine. She says this, Once we begin to see that we are all God, that we all have the attributes of God, then I think the whole purpose of human life is to re-own the God-likeness within us. The perfect love, the perfect wisdom, the perfect understanding. And when we do that, we create back to that old essential oneness which is consciousness. So this says that you have a spark of the divine. You are God itself. And so you are fine as you are. Deep down, you are good. The real problems are out there. And whatever shortcomings you possess are really just the products of society's failure to protect and promote you. So in both the views of Russell and McLean, there is either no divine truth or there is divine truth but it is in yourself. And we can see both of these reflected on our current Western world, depending which pocket you tend to poke your head into. Uh, A popular phrase that kind of reflects this is, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. But you see how in both of these, the similarity between them, why I'm bringing them forward, is that on both, you get the final say. Either there is no God, so you get the final say, or you are God and you get the final say. And these two are very contrasted to the nature of the prophet who spoke for God, an outside voice that came in and told the truth. And because of this, when you look in the Old Testament and New Testament, the prophets were usually very unpopular people. However, there is a very famous prophecy that Moses gives, and this is in Deuteronomy. And he says that one is going to come 
who, like Moses, is going to speak face to face with God and, and lead and deliver the people of Israel. So let's look at that passage right now. This is Deuteronomy 18, and I'm starting at verse 15. The heading in my Bible says, a new prophet like Moses. I'm going to read 15, skip 16, and then we'll keep going. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Now I'm skipping to verse 17. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So this is the prophet who is to come. And at the time of the death of Moses, this prophet had not yet appeared. And if we go further on into the Bible, at the time of Jesus, people were still also looking for this prophet. People would come along, they would say, I'm the prophet, but they turned out to be a poser. The real prophet had not come. And if you look in, actually, let me explain this. I think when I'm saying the prophet had not yet come, people were looking for it. That doesn't quite click with us today. So let me, let me try and break this down. It's hard to overstate the significance of this anticipation. I'll try and make a modern comparison. Imagine if we had a prophet today who spoke not only insight into the present, but also made accurate predictions about the future. This person predicted incredible things. They predicted the 2008 financial crash. They predicted Trump, Brexit, Bitcoin, the Raptors, Epstein, the coronavirus. And they made one last prophecy that the Toronto Maple Leafs were going to win the Stanley Cup again before the return of Christ. Okay? Think of what that would mean to us. We would cling to that prophecy. It would sustain us through years of suffering and shame at the hands of the other teams. We would look at every new draft or trade as a potential sporting savior, okay? Now take that expectation that we might feel and multiply it exponentially over centuries, okay? Now we're getting a better idea of how much these people were waiting for it. This is what it was like for the original audience at the time. Okay, so they're still looking for him. And the religious leaders at the time, they asked John the Baptist this. In John 1.21, they said, Are you the prophet? John the Baptist said, I am not, but I'm preparing the way for the one his to come. And when Jesus came, they recognized him. Some people recognized him as the long-awaited person. So John 6.14, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he, Jesus, had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. And further, Jesus himself testified that he was this prophet, the one who speaks the words for God. John 7, 16, one chapter later. So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And he also said, John 14, He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. There's many other examples we could give, but this very quickly shows that Jesus understood himself as the fulfillment of the Deuteronomy prophecy, as the one who would speak with God face to face and reveal his will to the people. Now, here's an easy way to summarize this. Here's an easy way to understand everything that we've just covered. In English, at least in English, part of the meaning of a sentence is determined by the emphasis that you put on a certain word. 
So that's kind of how sarcasm works. I could say, geez, nice shirt. Or, geez, nice shirt. Or look at the, the phrase, I'm Batman. Depending which word you emphasize, it changes the meaning. If I say, I'm Batman, you're asking, you know, who is Batman here? There's 20 guys dressed up like Batman in the room. I say, I'm Batman. That shows, it's kind of a personal claim. But if I emphasize the second word, I'm Batman. That's kind of like if there's a criminal who's scared in the alley. Huh, who, who are you? And you go, I'm Batman. Do you see how it changes the meaning of a sentence? Hopefully. Now, if we look at the statement, Jesus brings the truth. There's four words there. And if you try emphasizing different words in the sentence, it actually reveals a different facet of that claim. So you can try it. I'm going to emphasize the first word. If I say, Jesus brings the truth. Who brings the truth? Jesus brings the truth. No one else. There can be no prophets after Jesus because all of the prophets were pointing to Jesus. This is a point of disagreement that we share because between other religions, because other religions would claim that Jesus was a good prophet, but nothing more, and many came after him. But the Christian truth holds that Jesus is God's complete and final revelation. Okay, now let's emphasize the second word. Jesus brings the truth. You don't have to wait in a forest and fast for four years to get a golden scroll with the cheat codes for life. Jesus is God's perfect revelation. He shows us the Father's will. So what are we going to do with it? Now let's emphasize the third word. Jesus brings the truth, not a truth. Jesus brings the truth. It's not one thing to consider amongst others. It is exclusive. It is perfect. It is complete. Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for me. Now let's emphasize the last word. Jesus brings the truth. We keep using this word, but what is this truth? I'm glad you asked. This brings us to the second point. Jesus is the truth. The Christian God is not some impersonal cosmic force or a distant God who is impartial to the suffering of his people. No, our God is the God who cares and the God who came. The God who dwelt in our midst and he dwelt in our hearts. So when Jesus came to dwell in our midst and he's bringing the truth, what is this message? It is himself. He is the good news. Jesus' life is actually a means of God's action, not just God's self-disclosure. Jesus never used the messenger formula of saying, thus says the Lord. He didn't read a scroll. He lived a life. So the truth of Christianity is not just a fact. It's a person. Being Christian isn't only agreeing with a proposition. It's a personal relationship. So through the person of Jesus, we receive right standing and restoration with God. And when I think about this, uh, the relationship aspect of Christianity, I tend to be someone who's more comfortable with dealing with propositions and facts than the relational side of life. I'm more of like an intellectual pit bull. It gets me in trouble sometimes. But it, you can't really avoid this, the, the personal and propositional components of the Christian faith. And let me show you why. It's very interesting to speak of Jesus as the unifying force or the long-awaited secret that would bring everything together. Because this is exactly what Greek philosophers at the time were searching for. Greek philosophers, I would say ancient Greek philosophers, I don't know what Greek philosophers today are doing, 
ancient Greek philosophers were looking for a principle or a force that would be the reason, the purpose, the logic for everything. And this term was the logos. And they thought that it was the, that's actually where we get the word logic from. They were looking for the grand logic of everything. Some intellectual historians have said that at the time Jesus came, Greek philosophers were beginning to be disillusioned with this search. They couldn't find it. Maybe they didn't know what it was. An example is Heraclitus. He said, everything is change and relative, nothing, nothing is stable. So we can begin to appreciate the bombshell that John drops in the opening of his gospel in John 1.1. The author writes, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Many new believers are recommended to start reading the Bible in the book of John. And I always feel bad because this is a very hard sentence to understand if you don't know the context. And especially if this is your first time reading the Bible. When John wrote this, it was in Greek and he used the word logos, which we have translated into English as word. So if we substitute word for logos, we can see the magnitude of the claim that he's making. So let's look at John 1.1 again. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. So thus far, the original audience of John's Gospel, they were probably just nodding their heads in agreement, in the beginning was the Logos. Yep, the Logos was with God. Interesting. And the Logos was God. Huh, that's cool. But right after this, the language begins to shift from referring to a thing to referring to a person. If you keep reading, it says, he was in the beginning with God. Wait, he? The Logos is a person? Keep reading. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So if the Logos is a person, and the person is Jesus, we can now read the passage like this. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John is saying that the grand principle, the unifying theory, the secret of the philosophers is a person. Now here's an interesting repercussion of this. If the truth of Christianity is not just a fact, then being a Christian is not just thinking the right things. Holiness isn't determined by the size of your bookshelf, as much as that would give me some comfort. Let me, let me illustrate this. Consider uh, like evil demonic spiritual forces. If knowledge simply constituted being Christian then they would count as followers of God. But James 1 says the opposite. It says, you believe the Lord God is one, you do well, even the demons do and shudder, right? They might even have a more accurate understanding of uh, elements of God's character, his power, his love, his sovereignty, our weakness and our futility as humans. But this knowledge alone does not lead them to love God. Quite the opposite. So what we would say is knowledge is necessary, but it's not sufficient. You need it, but it's not good enough. Timothy Keller puts it this way very well. 
Jesus Christ doesn't just bring us the truth, he is the truth. Jesus Christ doesn't just tell us how to live, he is the life. Jesus Christ doesn't just give us God's words, the Bible says he is the word. So because of that, yes, we need to know him, but we need to receive him personally. We need to live for him, serve him. That's how we find our purpose, our logos, our meaning. And what happens when we receive Jesus as the truth? Jesus heals us with the truth. Things are not as they should be right now. Some things are broken and not operating as they should be. And we all nod our heads when we see this. No one's standing up and saying, excuse me, I quite like everything as it is right now. So through the life of Jesus, we see what he brings. We see, being, we see things being redeemed to right standing with God. So in the prophetic ministry of Jesus, he shows us the kingdom that is to come. The deaf will hear, the blind will see, the lame will walk, the discarded and disenfranchised are dignified, the poor are not looked down upon, we see the subjugation of the natural world, the removal of the scarcity of resources, we see reconciliation between ethnic groups with historical tension, we see how women are to be treated, we see how he treats hypocritical religious rulers, and there's no disagreement. Everyone sees Jesus going out there and fixing the problems, thumbs up, right? There's problems out there. And you fix them, Jesus, even if you got to fix a, flip a few tables. But it's just as equally true that things are broken out there, but things are also broken in here. And Jesus came to fix that just as much, if not more. In Acts 3, Peter is telling this same story that we've been telling, how Jesus is the prophet that is to come. And he says in verse 26, of Acts 3. When God raised up his servant, Jesus, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. So Contra, Shirley MacLaine, you are not God. Quite the opposite, actually. You need God to save you from yourself. And this word bless that Peter uses, it's not just right getting a splash of holy water. Bless. Bless means total human flourishing comprehensive satisfaction. This verse is saying that when we walk with Jesus, when we accept him as the truth, you don't feel insufficient. You don't feel like you aren't good enough, striving to be bigger and better and put on an appearance of completeness. Rather, you actually become your true self because you were made to be with him. Jesus says this in John 8, if you continue in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Free? Do you, do you mean if I do what you say, I'm free? Oddly enough, yes, actually. And this goes completely against our current cultural understanding of being free. In the year 2020, freedom means the ability to do what I want. But historically, and also biblically, freedom is the ability to do what I ought. To be who I should be. And there quite isn't enough time to do justice to this topic, but consider a very simple example. What is the purpose of an airplane? To fly, right? All the while carrying passengers and cargo. But if a pilot wants to make a plane fly, you can't do whatever you want. Otherwise you crash and burn, causing harm to yourself and people around you. 
if you want to fly, there are specific laws and rules that we are subject to, and you must obey if you want it to flourish. Doing so takes time and practice, but when we do it correctly, the airplane is free to fly as it ought to, as it was made to. So the same is true with humans. Uh, at our most basic physiological level, you can't do whatever you want. I have been learning that I cannot, or no longer can, eat gummy bears all day, sleep three hours, and then operate at peak physical performance. I can't treat people however I want and operate at peak relational health either. So it really doesn't make sense to say at the most foundational level that we can do absolutely whatever we want and live our best life, right? And I don't think anyone would quite go that far. But here's a great example of this. Augustine was an early church father. Canadians that I know tend to say Augustine. Americans say Augustine. We're talking about the same dude. And he was reflecting upon his early life before he became Christian. And he was asking himself, how was it that my freedom became my chains? How did I become enslaved by choosing to do whatever I wanted? He said this, lust indulged became habit and habit unresisted became necessity. So he's making a chain link and it's actually longer than this. If you want to read it in his confessions, it's worth your time. But he says that what he wanted soon became what he needed to survive. And this is the language of an addict, not a healthy person. So we as humans need someone who knows us well enough to help show us how to live, to give us the means for freedom of obeying our design, someone who brings the truth about being human and what flourishing even looks like to start with. And so from this perspective, obedience becomes liberty. These bars, these rules that looked like prison cells actually now look like scaffolding, which support our growth. Here's the question. Do you know the liberty of obedience? Do you know the freedom that comes from having Jesus as your prophet? Jesus tells us the truth about God and ourselves, the way that things were meant to be with God and how he has made this possible through life with Jesus. So Jesus heals us with the truth. He frees us with the truth. He reconciles us with the truth. He redeems us with the truth and he glorifies himself with the truth. Jesus is our prophet.